Listener Production. Samuel Jonathan McMillan was editing the United Nations Youth Australia newsletter and studying at Melbourne University when he realised that he was more interested in telling jokes. Fast forward 20 years and Sammy J is a household name. Sammy J hosts ABC's Melbourne Breakfast Show and his satirical videos are fan favourites on ABC TV. He's an award-winning stand-up comedian who also uses video and self-composed music in his comedy. It's so exciting to commemorate the occasion. My skinny compadre Sammy J and I thought we would play our favourite number uno song. It's called the black and white song. Oh, I love the black and white song. Black, black and white song, song, black and white song, black and black white, black and white song. It's a good, it's a good song. song. It is a good it's a song. song. It's a solid song. My name is Jamila Risby and welcome to The Weekend Briefing. Up next, The Weekend List, where Bron joins me to recommend what to watch, see, do, eat and listen to. But first, here is my joyful conversation with Sammy J about juice boxes, Disney's golden age and how much of yourself you really share with the people around you. Sammy J, welcome to the weekend briefing. Thank you for asking me. It's a pleasure to be uh, briefed on this fine weekend, Jamila. Uh, I don't know how much briefing there's going to be, if I'm honest. <laughs> I thought that's how this works. It's going to be me asking you a whole bunch of questions, and probably, I imagine by the end of it, you and I fighting about Disney. Well, okay, let's just earmark that for the ending. Let's not start that now, because I like to. I would like to keep this versioning friendship intact for at least 24 minutes. <laughs> we'll build we'll build up to the to the Disney chat. Now, Sammy, most people are going to know you because of your incredible comedy work on the ABC and also your radio work here in Melbourne. Tell me about moving out of formal comedy, let's say, and into the radio world where you get to be funny, but you also got to do some sort of newsy ABC things as well. Yes, well. Wow, that is a very big question, and I will try to answer it in some coherent fashion, but it was a very big shift because my whole life has just been, you know, the world of comedy since school and since yeah. uni days. It's just, you know, I've been a bit of an attention seeker and I sort of built up some skills in that sphere enough to have an income and to do festivals and live shows, and that's always been my world. And then moving into TV in fits and starts, I've had more failures than successes in the TV world, but this more the last five years or six years has been political satire stuff, which I really enjoy. And it's mm. been a nice meeting of my interests and, and skill set. And then out of the blue in 2019 comes this opportunity to do breakfast radio in Melbourne, which was completely unexpected to the point where when it was first floated, I sort of ran away from it. And, and I was, you know, all radio stations trial people. And they said, oh, do you want to trial some breakfast spots? And I said, oh, how about just like a nice off-Broadway afternoons thing with a co-host? Like I was that terrified because as you're sort of suggesting, uh, Jamila, like the, yeah, radio is a daunting prospect. The idea of being yeah. yourself for me was just the furthest on my agenda. So hold on, when you say being yourself, mm. because you feel that when you're on stage or when you're doing comedy, you're p- performing someone else? Uh, absolutely. Like my whole life has been that big wall. And I've had like Sammy J yeah. is like that's the name I'm known by now, like it or not. And so, but that was like a nickname from year eight, which was yeah. just a stupid bit of a performing sort of stage name as well. And and then 
that became Sammy J on stage and that became Sammy J and Randy with my, my – With your puppet friend. My best friend, Heath McIver, yeah, who is a man and a puppet. And so it's all – and so there's been versions of this Sammy J character around. Mm-hmm. These days on stage I feel like I'm at my most open or personal or whatever, but – of course, there's still a, you know, I've write things and then I present them. I write them and then I perform them, whether that's on TV or stage. But radio, that's not the case. You're there talking and listeners don't want a, a fake or they don't want to, you know, and it's always a version of yourself. I, I, you know, everyone is always performing, even you and me right now, performing to an extent. Um, but it's about authenticity and, and believability and, and whether you're still being true to yourself. And so to come back to that question, it was a real jolt, <laughs> like a ass-crunching jolt to suddenly be in front of a microphone with no real preparation or no ability to prepare. You can prepare an intro for a radio show, but the rest you're just flying yeah. blind and just and it's now been two and a half years of that and I feel much more comfortable there, but it's still always a bit uncomfortable too. <laughs> because I'm I'm more like I'm more relaxed in the studio filming a song on piano with five cameras and jumping around. Like that's it's relaxing for me. That is wild. But being on radio, talking to someone about what they do in, in their lives or, or, you know, what they had for dinner the night before, that's sort of terrifying because <laughs> I feel like I, I have less tricks at my disposal. Are you someone who brings your own life into what you talk about on radio? Because that's what you get asked to do, right? As a radio host, you get to, you get asked to share something of yourself so that audience starts yes. to know you and care about you and jokes alone aren't, aren't enough. Do you feel comfortable with that? Uh, no, in short, and that's been a big part of the journey. And, like, you know, this is, this is the weekend briefing. We can be open and honest with each other. I was listening to you, Jamil. I was listening to you on a different podcast maybe a month ago, and you have been – you are always so – eloquent and generous and giving when it comes to your own story and your own life. And you've been done the same on my radio show. Because I can't play piano. (laughs) That's the trick. Imagine, you know, imagine talking about your medical history in song. I mean, it'll be a whole different thing. But (laughs) but, but, so I know I just have, I hear you and I think, how can you be so eloquent and open and there is no wall there to me as a listener when I hear a listener Mm. read your words that there's no wall. And for me, there has always been a wall and, and radio has smashed that open and I'm still finding my feet there. Yeah. So tell me about when comedy became a thing in your life. Do you remember the first thing you listened to or watched that you then went back and watched and listened to again and again and again because you wanted to keep revisiting the jokes? I wish there was like one specific moment, but I think it was definitely just an appreciation of comedy, very Australian comedy, you know, in terms of growing up in the nineties as we both did. And so you know, my sister had the VHS tape of The Late Show. I remember giving that, watching that over and over. And then The Simpsons was always on, which is not Australian, obviously. Yeah. But, you know, they're the things that I would just go back to and watch and, and learn all the songs and things. Um, there was one specific moment for me, which was Year 7, and my, my music teacher played me a song by Tom Lehrer, who was an American political satirist who used to sing stupid songs about American politics on piano in the 1950s, which is, like, ridiculous that that is largely what I do now for a job. <laughs> like, there was a direct line between... My teacher going, hey, you might like this. And then I was like, oh, wow. And then I learned all those off by heart. I had no idea what it was. It was like references to politicians in the 50s and 60s. I had no idea what it meant. But I just loved the wordplay. I loved the catchiness. I loved the stupidity of it all. So that was definitely part of it in terms of my love of music because I wasn't musical at all. But I I learned piano so I could sing stupid songs. So that was a real circular sort of thing going on. I remember when I was sort of that age, I remember being in year seven and – 
if you asked most of the kids in the year what they wanted to be when they grew up, there was a very sort of standard list of like we didn't have a broad sense of what the world of work had on offer, right? Like you'd have mm-hmm. actress and then you'd have firefighter and then you'd have doctor. You know, it was very uh, sort of simple labels that probably hadn't moved on much from our year two understanding, right? Yeah. So did you have any sense when you were watching that kind of comedy that that was a job, that that was something you could do to make a living out of? Not so much a living, but I certainly had it like I knew from probably, what, a year seven, year eight, that that was the thing I was interested in, like creating and writing. Like, oh, I was writing, I think, comedy newsletters and getting classmates to subscribe to my little newsletters in like year seven. So I had definitely that sort of uh, hustler, sort of business-like mentality back then. And and then I was putting on shows or writing songs and putting on comedy nights at school. So I had the creative drive. And by like the end of high school, I look back on like, you know, the things we wrote to each other, whatever, like there was a general sense that I was going to be a comedian, not that I was necessarily even good at it, but people knew that that was what I wanted to do. And I also would, I think from about the age of 15, 16, I'd catch the train up with my mates from the peninsula to go and watch shows at the comedy festival. So I knew the comedy festival existed and that's certainly living in Melbourne. That's a huge advantage because we do see that as a, again, I don't know if you call it a career, but I knew there there were going to be opportunities to perform and that was really important. A lot of what you do for the ABC outside of the radio gig is in the political satire space. Just be decent, adequate, good enough because the bar's been set so low. If you're not screwing half your staff, then we'll be happy so. Decorous, demure, unassuming and respectable, mind your P's and Q's. Like the farmer said to babe, that'll do, peak, that'll do. Do you think satire's changed a lot since you first got into comedy and how do you think it has changed if it has? It's a fascinating question because I do, because as I say, because I came to satire arguably at 11 years old listening to Tom Lehrer from the 1950s America. So I guess in that sense I have a fairly broad view of the satirical landscape and yeah. it's certainly the format has changed in terms of we now have the internet and even in the last six years since I've been doing it, you know, that I only have a job now with the ABC because of the internet because my first series of playground politics, which was me using the form of play school to parody <laughs> politics, that was only a Facebook show to begin with. And so it, had, it happened mm. to have some some traction there and then that sort of led to TV spots. So, no, I think it hasn't changed in the sense there will always be people who want to take the piss and there's always talent out there and the internet, if anything, has democratised that. So in the last five years you have these wonderful younger voices emerging and I'm still, mm. I don't know, I do some stuff that is very old-fashioned but I'm also young-ish and so I'm sort of straddle the line but it's beautiful seeing this, these younger voices come up and whilst I'm still sort of trying to always be creative and, and try and come up with new concepts and ways of doing it. But no, I think the main thing that has changed is politics is changing around the world. It's becoming more ferocious and more devastating in many ways. And so how do people respond to that? But, you know, I'm sure people were saying the same, um, you know, when when Cromwell was burning churches 500 years ago in England, it would have been a hard time to make jokes as well. So Who would have wanted to be a jester in those days, right? Like they would have been singing on their loose and people would say, oh, that's offensive. So Cancel him. (laughs) Cancel him. Cancel the bard. So, um. Yeah, there's the whole cancel culture and stuff. I don't know. I've never, like, that's just, uh, I'm not on Twitter very often. Like, I'm there yeah. grudgingly to put out my gear, but I, uh, you can literally scour every bit I've ever done. I've never uttered a public opinion about politics in my life. I think I can actually stand by that statement. I'm ready to be stand to stand corrected, and I know that people might chuckle because I do political satire every week, but it's always, as I say, it's always behind a character or a thought or a concept. You can deduce a certain whatever moral compass, if you like, in my work, but... um. 
even on radio, I'm I'm there very cautiously, not wanting to really enter the discussion because I don't feel like I have that much to add there. Mm. Are you the same in your private life? Do you hold back political opinion or listen to others more than you put forward your own? No, in private life I've got all sorts of opinions, you know, go wild. Yeah. Um, give me a Sam Blanc at a party, Jamila, and we'll, we'll get it down to business. <laughs> I will but, tell um, you what I think. <laughs> but equally I don't have, you know, I'm, I'm sort of, I'm almost um, very annoyingly moderate in terms of I actually, away from caricaturing people like I believe that people go to politics mainly for good reasons I really respect them for it which is a yeah. you know humiliating thing to sort of say but um I was a political nerd before I was into comedy like dad was a politics teacher I used to you know I grew up like watching what? um elections I used to volunteer at elections as a scrutineer when I was 16 I, I, I counted votes at the referendum for the republic and I counted votes for the 2001 election so that was you know, genuinely just my interest. It like was I'm around a massive, you. Yeah. yeah, it was around me. And, I, and Canberra is still my favourite place. Like I love that. I go there as a total nerd and it's hard to switch that off. Like I, there's a real earnest political nerd in me alongside the other bit, which is just ripping the shit out of people. So it's a, it's a weird line to walk. I don't think anyone in this podcast has ever said that Canberra is their favourite place. And as <laughs> I, I am Canberra born and bred, so I really I, appreciate it. I didn't. I didn't. I did not know that about you. So I'm, um, uh, I didn't say that to suck up. But it's, um, it's no. Like it's true. And I say that to people, and often enough people will just laugh and go, "Ah, oh, uh, he's being a satirist because Canberra shit." No, it's, it's the greatest. Canberra's it's, lovely. It's. I've got the map. I've got Walter Burley Griffin's map on my wall at home. The original <laughs> design. Shout out to Marion, his wife, who did most of the work, as I understand. But yes, um, it's it's a great place. I've got friends there. You know, it's it's all our taxes go there to making great calories. I'm just. Being a tourist writer now, but just to make oh, the look, point. Look, I think um, Chief Minister Andrew Barr is saving a lot of money right now because of <laughs> yeah. this classic Canberra plug. I was in Canberra for the school holidays a couple of weeks ago, and when I say I was in Canberra for the school holidays, my parents are there, so I went there yeah. and delivered them my child, so Amazing. I could get work done in the school holidays. And um, my mum's a retired primary school teacher, which meant she did the full suite of activities with my seven-year-old. Like they went to the Mint, oh. they went to Questacon, they did, Questacon, they did all yeah. the things. The National and Arboretum like, with the playground there. They went to the Arboretum, they went to the zoo, they went to the National Library, they did all the classic institutions, they went to the War Memorial and, like, like she took my seven-year-old who was born in 2015 to the Mint. Like, he doesn't even, like, he thinks the Tooth Fairy should tap, you know? Like, he doesn't <laughs> even know money. The Mint, their days are numbered, let's be honest. There's a lot of robots in the Mint now, which made me actually feel good because there's less people that are going to lose their jobs when we stop making any coins. <laughs> You've got two daughters. Mm-hmm. Uh, my notes tell me one in grade one and one in grade four. Well, your notes are perfect. Good. Do they take juice boxes to school? <laughs> oh, so I have this, again, this, this circles back to your first question and I realise I don't even think I answered it properly, so please feel free to hold me to account because you asked me whether I'm, how much I bring up myself to the radio. But online I was doing this stupid campaign uh, because I put up a picture of me with a, with a box drink, as I called it at primary school, and people said, no, it's a popper, no, it's a juice box. And then I, start, I said, well, I'm not going to stop posting pictures of me with it until everyone agrees it's a box drink because little did most of the, my new audience realise that for the first 10 years of my life, I, oh, sorry, not of my life, of my career, I used to sing songs with a juice box on stage. That was my thing. That was my loud, stupid little gimmicky look and it was this quaint and twee and stupid and absurd. We're and not even joke. supposed to give our kids juice these days. I know, exactly. Right? We're supposed exactly. to give them water all the time. But I was, I was doing a gig in 2003 at the Armadale Hotel in Armadale, which is now, I think, a block of swanky apartments. And I was with all these, like, male comedians who were drinking beer and I had a keyboard and 
I didn't drink beer. It was my, and so I just pulled out the box drink that I had as a joke. Awesome. Like as a, and then I get up and sing some like highly offensive material, but that was hard to joke because then I would like sit from a juice box. That's this stupid, like <laughs> absurdist uh, performance. Anyway, so I've got this wealth of material of me holding and I kept on posting them every day. Um, to answer the question, though, uh, I was saying all that to suggest and remind myself that I don't connect what I do online to my personal life because I was yeah. then two weeks ago walking with my daughter to the park and she'd wanted to get like a nippy's strawberry milk from the milk bar. And so she had a sip of that. She Then she like has like a third of it and doesn't want the rest. So I'm left holding yeah. it, walking along, chatting, and a guy rides past and goes, oh, is that a box drink or juice box, Savage Jade? And it was very funny, but I it literally jarred me um, because I'm – Occasionally people will say hi in the street, but I yeah. sort of don't connect me being stupid online to the real world. Um, so to answer the question, they don't because it's bad for them. You don't give kids juice boxes to you these days. No. You're meant to give them just water no. and that's a tragedy. Also, there's also, um, what's it, oh, my gosh, what's it called? The clean lunchbox. We're not allowed to put any oh, paper nude, or plastic. No, the, the plastic, nude food. Yeah. The nude food. The nude food. I was shocked. Like that was the most shocking thing about my child's first year of school was the nude food. And also the fact that you're just unwrapping it at home and putting the plastic in the bin anyway. So it's just schools outsourcing that step. <laughs> at least now we can recycle soft plastic. Oh, for those who are listening who do not have children in primary school at the moment, the kids are encouraged, certainly here in Melbourne, to take a lunchbox to school that has no plastic or paper in it mm-hmm. so that they are doing the right thing by the environment and also that they're not littering at school uh, and leaving stuff all over, over the playground. But it does just put the onus on the parents. And the kids at my kids' school, they get points towards their house if they have yeah. good food, yeah. which means I I am making the lunch. So I am doing the points towards you the house. You should get the points, yeah. I should get the points. I get the points for Waratah or whatever it is not 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 the him <laughs> he didn't do anything i gave a speech at a high school a few weeks ago though that had literally adopted the hogwarts harry potter oh. house names and i was like well done well done teacher that's that's pretty great do you think you're getting more comfortable with it as you get older and more successful or is it less comfortable? Is it more like, no, 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 my privacy matters to me and I don't want to let in people to what my world's like? I think it's a bit of both. I don't think anyone cares about my world, but it's still in showbiz and the way I've learned to s- survive in showbiz, which can be brutal and uplifting and highs and lows, um, the, the way I've learned to survive is by having a, my family and life totally removed from that. So it's like, I, you know, I can have a shit gig or do a stupid embarrassing thing and it goes well or doesn't, but I can still go back and that's just a nice little quarantined area. However, I've learned in, in radio that I'm getting older and we're all humans and it is wonderful and joyous to share that and not be afraid of that. Yeah. It's also often just not cool. You know, I don't want to be like on radio crying about whatever has happened to me that, that week, you know, and so yeah. it's it's a line to tread and I think it's a skill to build up. And so I think, uh, as I said, I'd come back to you as an example of someone who, who many people out there who just I admire so much in your, your ability to be yourself but keep your shit together when you're doing that and I haven't got to that point yet and I don't know at, at what point I will. Maybe it's 20 years away or maybe it's like a, a switch or just a, a journey that goes on. But I don't think every anyone shares everything, right? Like mm. everyone draws lines about what they are and aren't willing to share. Like yeah. I, I kind of think I've got the version of having been very sick a few years ago that I'm happy to tell people because I think it's useful because when I was sick I looked around for other people who were – young and unwell and I couldn't 
see any and obviously they existed it's just they weren't in the public eye and so I felt very lonely and I was determined to fix that but there's the bit that I share and then there's all the stuff that I wouldn't share that's for me. And so we did a bit on radio about divorce a few weeks ago, you know, being children of divorce, mm. as in that was the segment because I'm that's what I am, ever Camilla Heike's wonderful song about being a child of divorce. But I was like, well, yeah, I'll, I'll talk about it, but there's a pretty clear line where I don't want to talk about stuff about my parents, yeah. their life and their story. And I got like almost, you know, I could understandably from my my radio producers who are some of my best friends now because, we, you know, radio is intense and the hours are weird. And so, but I sort of felt like I was letting them down by not, by not like, you know, because... I guess in the FM radio world, more than anything, uh, it's like you're meant to just spill your guts on everything and there should be nothing. Yeah. And, and that's an example of something where I'm like, well, I can't give necessarily even the listeners what they would want there because it's it's wonderful hearing someone reveal everything on radio. I, I love that. I lean in, but I don't want to do that. So um, that's the sort of line to walk. But I'll still try and be authentic in, in summing it up in some way. And that is, of course, not to compare those two challenges in any way, shape or form. I genuinely think everyone keeps some stuff to themselves though. Everyone has a version that they put out and a version that they keep inside and sometimes the two spill over a little bit. But, yeah, I, I still think I'm quite – it's not a shtick. Like it's not like I'm performing but I I have a public narrative of what happened, which is all true but there's a, there's a lot that I don't say. I guess maybe that it's that word authenticity again. Like for me I try to – Mm. present myself in a way now, even on, on radio in particular, but in general, even in a chat like this, like I actually wouldn't have done this five years ago. If you'd asked me, I would say no. Like yeah, it's terrifying. Right. Well, no way. And so I'm definitely. You're like, can pre- I bring my puppet friend? Yeah, yeah, please. Look, I'll do it all in song and give me the answers in advance and I'll write some. So it's about an authenticity and people will all, everyone has their own walls and guards and, and, and it, but maybe hopefully whatever audience is out there listening to my show on radio, for example, understands that. So they know, yeah, I'm being me. Of course, there's things I wouldn't talk about or or things I'm not comfortable with, but I'm still authentic to the best of my abilities. And I I think one of the things that I love about your show, especially because it's often the first thing I hear in the morning, is the lightness and the silliness that's mixed in with everything else. And obviously you're on the public broadcaster. There's a level of serious stuff that's got to be in there. But for the most part, it's just fun and it doesn't feel like fun at anyone's expense it doesn't feel mean and I think a lot of a lot of the time we have fun online um, a lot of the way we have fun in the world now involves punching at someone and I think you managed to not do that well thank you and um, I think that's baking to me partly because just my the sense of humor I think the first well, the start of my career I was very could be very cruel and very all sorts you know you know and it's 20 years ago now so you know you mature and learn and grow I, so there's the idea of punching down to me is just I just would never do it because for the reasons you mentioned, it's not funny to me. And, and also I think the world has moved on in a, in a good way at least. Maybe, you know, portions of the world where you just don't do that. Um, equally, it's fear of upsetting people because radio is broadcasting, not narrow casting, you know. And so yeah. if I'm doing a show and I sell tickets, I know people will come because they know me. And so the second I'm on stage, we're dancing and everyone gets the tone. I could, I could make a really foul joke, but people know the context in which it's made. And so it's a, but yeah. on radio, that's not on radio every day. I'll still have tech messages coming in from someone who doesn't know my name, but is offended by something I've said, you know, and I'd be conscious of that because it's not just it's not my show. It belongs to taxpayers. So it's out there to serve a purpose. Um, but in the middle there, yeah, you find a place to play. I promised people we would talk about Disney and that's where we're getting because I have read online that, Quite genuinely, Aladdin changed your life and you got completely obsessed with it. I think we are roughly the same generation. So 
Like Aladdin comes out when you're in primary school? I mean, should we just name and shame? I've got no problem with my age. You've got a problem with your age? Oh, should we just embarrassing. come out? No, not at all. Oh. I'll tell you what. <laughs> once you've had a few brain tumours, you get very proud of every yeah. year that yeah, you've earned. You're like, guys, I am 36 now and I have got there. Yeah, so you are 36 now? Yes. And yes. I'm Sorry, 39. That was a joke. No, I know, I know, but I'm just like I feel younger than you because you, you or we've got you seem to have more of your shit together than I do. Um, but I'm 39, you're 36, so that that's great. With I was in your 12, you would have been in your nine. Yeah. That places me mentally, yeah. places where we would have been. But yeah. definitely same era. We, we hit the sweet spot of the golden age of Disney. That's the main thing we that we did. need to be aware Truly. of. Ten thousand years will give you such a crick in the neck. Whoa! Wow! Does it feel good to be out of there? I'm you, nice to be back, ladies and gentlemen. Hi, where are you from? What's your name? Uh, uh, Aladdin. Aladdin! So tell me about seeing Aladdin for the first time. Okay, so, and this is because you asked me earlier about those those moments and that was comedy related. Aladdin is very comedy related but in a tangential way because I was with my dad for a weekend and we were going to go to the movies to see Mario Brothers and then dad looked in the Age newspaper and saw that it wasn't on a point in cinema only Aladdin was on and I'd seen the pictures for Aladdin and I'd seen that big stupid blue character and I just, for whatever reason, had no interest. I wasn't a Disney, into Disney, I think Beauty and the Beast had passed me by and I thought the genie looked stupid and so I didn't want to go but it was like nothing else to do and so I would go and see Aladdin. And um, 1993 was the year. Like just loved it so much. Went and bought the, the audio cassette of the soundtrack and learned every word and went back to see it again and from that point on, like, just strapped in. Like, I remember the two-minute trailer of The Lion King came out and I was just counting down the days for that movie and then Pocahontas came out in 95 and I was, like, riding into the green crowd to defend Pocahontas because Laurie Zion had written a bad review about it and I was like, how dare you? And then, of course, we hit 96 with Toy Story and and uh, Hunchback of Notre Dame, which is deeply under, underrated. It changed my life because I just became, I just love Disney movies, but more importantly, I think the music, really sipped into my brain. I just, you know, singing along and a reason to sing. I was never trained. I wasn't really, didn't do music, but I just would sing, just sing along and sing at school. And, and um, it was, it's still like I'd give you most lines of the movie now and uh, proudly so. It was just, this is like another friend in your life, those movies that just comforted me nonstop. There is a friendship-like connection that happens for kids who grew up in the 90s and the early noughties because there wasn't as much stuff around to watch, yeah. right? Like my kid's not necessarily watching the same stuff as his mates because he's got so much more choice. Mm-hmm. Like Bluey is probably the only common denominator amongst his friendship group yeah. because they're all doing their own thing on Netflix or Stan or, or whatever, whereas we we didn't have a lot of stuff. <laughs> it was. It was. There was, yeah, you were part of the same conversation. Uh, I remember the same thing happened when Jurassic Park came out. Titanic was, you know, yeah. I guess I guess kids had Frozen, what, 10 years ago, which um, Frozen and Frozen 2, both spectacular movies. And so I think that Great. at a moment, but you're right, they're, they're, they're fewer and far between. But I also think, and maybe this is just what every generation thinks, Jamila, but I'm pretty sure you will agree that we got lucky and we did live through those best three or four years of Disney of all time. Like Beauty and the Beast, again, I was late to that, I admit, and I have accepted my, my roles there. But Aladdin, Lion King, I mean, yeah. It can't fit better. It never will. As a half Indian kid who was growing up, I mean, they made up whatever city, where were they? Agrabah, that Agrabah, they were I mean, apparently in. But having someone, having a woman on screen who was cool in Princess Jasmine, yeah. who vaguely looked like she could have been related uh, to uh, us, was such a big deal for my sister and I back then. Because it was, it was all blonde haired, blue eyed princesses with pale skin. 
it's a fact, like amazing to hear that because, of course, Aladdin is now held up, you know, as one of the problematic uh, films yeah. of Disney's canon and it's got the apology at the start and everything. But And I've always thought, well, yeah, there are clearly some issues you can point to, but for me it's a different kettle of fish to like the ones from the 60s, you know, like it's, it's a, it's a yeah. spectrum of offence. Um, so I guess it's, 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 it's nice to think that it wasn't entirely bad, but, of course, we've come a long way now. Now we have far better representation with the movies they're bringing out. Yeah, exactly. And look, we, you know, we grew up and my sister and I grew up in the era where there wasn't a lot of choice yeah. uh, and we took what we could, we took what we could get. But um, I think something, at least something meant something back then. Uh, whereas now I think we've moved from beyond something, some representation to good and meaningful and true representation, which yeah. is obviously better. But um, that movie stuck with me for that reason. Equally, Jamila, I mean, I too had struggled to be represented until I saw a large blue attention-seeking genie who couldn't <laughs> fulfil the promises that he made in life. And so equally, yeah. I saw myself reflected. And sang and danced about it a lot. You ain't never had a Sammy, I want to thank you for being the most delightful guest on The Weekend Briefing. It has been thoroughly lovely unpacking juice boxes and Disney and all sorts of things about uh, your psyche and how much you give to the world. Jamila, that is uh, too kind, uh, genuinely, and thank you. And I'm sorry that we didn't really get the biffo in at the end there with Disney. I feel like it almost demands a, a sequel at some point in the future where we really get into the, um, Sold. the things we disagree on because it's been an absolute joy. That's it for my conversation with Sammy J. You can, of course, catch him on ABC Melbourne during the breakfast program early in the morning. What a great way to wake up. He also has a podcast called Sammy J's Snack Pack, which is the best bits of the radio show during the week. Great to dip into, even if you're outside of Melbourne. And he has a weekly TV spot where he does some seriously great political satire. Don't go away. Bron is jumping into the studio and we'll be bringing you The Weekend List. It's weekend briefing time. Bron is here and I am hoping that she's been watching something good, eating something good. What have you got to recommend? My first one is the Imperfects podcast, which is such an amazing podcast. But my special episode I want to recommend is with Michelle Brazier, who is one of Australia's best stand-up comedians, in my opinion. She's also an actor, a singer. You might have seen her on Sean McAuliffe's Mad as Hell on the ABC. She's just incredible. Um, In the episode, they talk about her optimism, how she goes through the story about how she lost both her dad and her brother at such a young age. She speaks about, you know, grief and the way she talks about it is so beautiful and relatable and, yeah, just a really fascinating conversation. I lost my dad very, very young and I've always sort of prepared for the worst, hope for the best, prepare for the worst. So as soon as he was sick... I went, all right, he's going to die. And I sort of grieved him immediately. And then when he died, I was holding his hand. You know, I was looking after everyone. I held my sister's hand at the funeral because, you know, she was having trouble speaking and she's older than me. I sang at the funeral. I can see what's missing in this in this cast of people. I can see that the stoic person is missing. So I will play that role. And I was just more familiar doing that. That sounds really, really good. I love the Imperfects podcast, so very happy to visit that one. I'm going to recommend what I think might be as different as possible (laughs) to what you just did. It is not wholesome. It is not uplifting, but it is a really good watch, and that is that Vikings has returned with a new spin-off show called Vikings Valhalla. 
Stay with me, Bron. Stay with me. <laughs> it's not my usual cup of tea, but I really liked Vikings, right? And it is a it, sort of historical drama about the <laughs> the Norsemen of early medieval Scandinavia. Um, look, it's a lot of blood, a lot of sex, a lot of paganism. Um, it's pretty intense. Uh, it did become, the original Vikings became Amazon Prime's most watched show ever in its final season back in 2020. Now there is Vikings Valhalla, which is a spin-off uh, and it's on Netflix. It picks up about a hundred years or so after where Vikings itself left off. So it's a whole new band of very good looking warrior men and women doing a lot of fighting. Uh, they're back in Kattegat in Norway, which people will remember from the first show and the warring tribes are warring again. Look, it's just more of the same. There's nothing new. No one is inventing the wheel here. But if you liked Vikings, you're going to love this one. Oh, my God. You've really surprised me with that recommendation, Jen. It is a very un-me recommendation. It is. My next one is My Next Guest Needs No Introduction with David Letterman. It's on Netflix. A few from the later season I really enjoyed were Billie Eilish's episode. Cardi B's episode was really funny. Yeah, it's just laid back style of interviewing. He's got like all that experience from his late night show um, from many moons ago. Um, But yeah, it's just a really fun, interesting way to do interviewing. They like go out and about. It's not just... Half of it's like sit down on the couch, the other half they're out doing stuff. I really enjoyed it. That one took me by surprise as well. I didn't expect to like it as much as I did. I watched the episode with Lizzo and like at one point she's playing the flute for him. She's it's amazing. Quite ra- it's quite a random way of, of uh, interviewing, but I really loved, uh, loved that episode. Great recommendation. This is Blue Ivy. She's controversial. It, because of the colour? Yeah. They were like, that's not a flute, it's a toy. So, um... People can be so ugly talking about flutes. I hate it. You put your hand here and you put... Where do I blow? (laughs) Well, all right. Oh, stop that. (laughs) Childish. I am also going to change tone once again. Um, I want to recommend a book, folks. It's by a new author called Lucianne Tonti. It's called Sundressed and it has the most stunning cover, firstly. It's it's sort of a pen and ink drawing of a woman in in a yellow dress with yellow earrings. And it is a celebration of the future of fashion from a sustainable perspective. So... I think all of us know and have been victims of fast fashion and I'm certainly someone who more and more becomes really uncomfortable about buying things that do not last and I would rather spend a bit more to make sure something is quality and will last a long time rather than end up in landfill. Lucian takes it to the next level. She takes us beyond sustainable fashion, like moves to the next level and looks at a future where we will wear clothes made by natural fibres only. The book is really accessible. It's really optimistic, I think, about the challenges that, you know, everyone is facing in in the production chain for clothes, whether it's farmers, business, designers. I think so much of the talk in this space is very, very negative, where she recasts it as a time for possibility, a possibility of contributing to environmental uh, rejuvenation, um, a new way of doing farming that can bring uh, money to those uh, who are working in the industry, and also the chance to wear really beautiful, long-lasting clothes made of fabrics that don't hurt the planet. That's it for the weekend briefing. Thank you so much for being with us. We really do appreciate your time and your attention. And look, normally at this stage, folks, I ask you to go and like and rate and review this episode. Please do that. 
but I'm also going to ask you today to tell a friend about the briefing and the weekend briefing because the best way that we can get more people to be listening to the show is when it comes from someone who already loves the show and I'm very much hoping that's you. So if you enjoyed today's episode, just click send on your podcast app and forward it along to one of your mates and get them introduced to the briefing and the weekend briefing. That's it from us. We will see you on Monday morning, bright and early, where Tom and the team will have the latest headlines straight to your headphones. Listener.